Chapter Thirteen of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, The Problem. But who would force the soul tilts with a straw against a champion cased in adamant? Wordsworth. When we re-entered the parlour below, the first sight that met our eyes was Mary, standing wrapped in her long cloak in the centre of the room. She had arrived during our absence, and now awaited us with lifted head and countenance fixed in its proudest expression. Looking in her face, I realised what the embarrassment of this meeting must mean to these women, and would have retreated, but something in the attitude of Mary Leavenworth seemed to forbid my doing so. At the same time, determined that the opportunity should not pass without some sort of reconcilement between them, I stepped forward, and, bowing to Mary, said, "'Your cousin has just succeeded in convincing me of her entire innocence, Miss Leavenworth. I am now ready to join Mr. Grice, heart and soul, in finding out the true culprit.' "'I should have thought one look into Eleanor Leavenworth's face would have been enough to satisfy you that she is incapable of crime,' was her unexpected answer, and lifting her head with a proud gesture, Mary Leavenworth fixed her eyes steadfastly on mine. I felt the blood flash to my brow, but before I could speak her voice rose again, still more coldly than before. "'It is hard for a delicate girl, unused to aught but the most flattering expressions of regard, to be obliged to assure the world of her innocence in respect to the committal of a great crime. Eleanor has my sympathy.' And sweeping her cloak from her shoulders with a quick gesture, she turned her gaze for the first time upon her cousin. Instantly Eleanor advanced as if to meet it, and I could not but feel that, for some reason, this moment possessed an importance for them which I was scarcely competent to measure but if I found myself unable to realise its significance, I at least responded to its intensity, and indeed it was an occasion to remember. To behold two such women, either of whom might be considered the model of her time, face to face and drawn up in evident antagonism, was a sight to move the dullest sensibilities, but there was something more in this scene than that. It was the shock of all the most passionate emotions of the human soul, the meeting of waters whose depth and force I could only guess by the effect. Eleanor was the first to recover. Drawing back with the cold haughtiness, which, alas, I had almost forgotten in the display of later and softer emotions, she exclaimed, "'There is something better than sympathy, and that is justice,' and turned as if to go. "'I will confer with you in the reception-room, Mr. Raymond.' But Mary, springing forward, caught her back with one powerful hand. "'No,' she cried, "'you shall confer with me. I have something to say to you, Eleanor Leavenworth.' And taking her stand in the centre of the room, she waited. I glanced at Eleanor, saw this was no place for me, and hastily withdrew. For ten long minutes I paced the floor of the reception-room, a prey to a thousand doubts and conjectures. What was the secret of this home?' what had given rise to the deadly mistrust continually manifested between these cousins, fitted by nature for the completest companionship and the most cordial friendship. 
it was not a thing of to-day or yesterday no sudden flame could awake such concentrated heat of emotion as that of which i had just been the unwilling witness one must go farther back than this murder to find the root of a mistrust so great that the struggle it caused made itself felt even where i stood though nothing but the faintest murmur came to my ears through the closed doors presently the drawing-room curtain was raised and mary's voice was heard in distinct articulation the same roof can never shelter us both after this to-morrow you or i find another home and blushing and panting she stepped into the hall and advanced to where i stood but at the first sight of my face a change came over her all her pride seemed to dissolve and flinging out her hands as if to ward off scrutiny she fled from my side and rushed weeping upstairs i was yet labouring under the oppression caused by this painful termination of this strange scene when the parlour curtain was again lifted and eleanor entered the room where i was pale but calm showing no evidences of the struggle she had just been through unless by a little extra weariness about the eyes she sat down by my side and meeting my gaze with one unfathomable in its courage said after a pause tell me where i stand let me know the worst at once i fear that i have not indeed comprehended my own position rejoiced to hear this acknowledgment from her lips i hastened to comply i began by placing before her the whole case as it appeared to an unprejudiced person enlarged upon the causes of suspicion and pointed out in what regard some things looked dark against her which perhaps to her own mind were easily explainable and of small account tried to make her see the importance of her decision and finally wound up with an appeal would she not confide in me but i thought you were satisfied she tremblingly remarked and so i am but i want the world to be so too ah now you ask too much the finger of suspicion never forgets the way it has once pointed she sadly answered my name is tainted for ever and you will submit to this when a word i am thinking that any word of mine now would make very little difference she murmured i looked away the vision of mr fobbs in hiding behind the curtains of the opposite house recurring painfully to my mind if the affair looks as bad as you say it does she pursued it is scarcely probable that mr gryce will care much for any interpretation of mine in regard to the matter mr gryce would be glad to know where you procured that key if only to assist him in turning his inquiries in the right direction she did not reply and my spirits sank in renewed depression it is worth your while to satisfy him i pursued and though it may compromise some one you desire to shield she rose impetuously i shall never divulge to any one how i came in possession of that key and sitting again she locked her hands in fixed resolve before her i rose in my turn and paced the floor the fang of an unreasoning jealousy striking deep into my heart mr raymond if the worst should come and all who love me should plead on bended knees for me to tell 
I will never do it. Then, said I, determined not to disclose my secret thought, but equally resolved to find out, if possible, her motive for this silence, you desire to defeat the cause of justice. She neither spoke nor moved. Miss Leavenworth, I now said, this determined shielding of another at the expense of your own good name is no doubt generous of you, but your friends and the lovers of truth and justice cannot accept such a sacrifice. She started haughtily. Sir, she said. If you will not assist us, I went on calmly, but determinedly, we must do without your aid. After the scene I have just witnessed above, after the triumphant conviction which you have forced upon me, not only of your innocence, but your horror of the crime and its consequences, I should feel myself less than a man if I did not sacrifice even your own good opinion in urging your cause, and clearing your character from this foul aspersion. Again that heavy silence. "'What do you propose to do?' she asked at last. Crossing the room, I stood before her. I proposed to relieve you utterly and forever from suspicion by finding out and revealing to the world the true culprit. I expected to see her recoil, so positive had I become by this time as to who that culprit was, but instead of that she merely folded her hands still more tightly and exclaimed, "'I doubt if you will be able to do that, Mr. Raymond.' doubt if I will be able to put my finger upon the guilty man, or doubt if I will be able to bring him to justice. "'I doubt,' she said with a strong effort, "'if any one ever knows who is the guilty person in this case.' "'There is one who knows,' I said with a desire to test her. "'One?' "'The girl Hannah is acquainted with the mystery of that night's evil doings, Miss Leavenworth. Find Hannah?' and we find one who can point out to us the assassin of your uncle. "'That is mere supposition,' she said, but I saw the blow had told. "'Your cousin has offered a large reward for the girl, and the whole country is on the lookout. Within a week we shall see her in our midst.' A change took place in her expression and bearing. "'The girl cannot help me,' she said. Baffled by her manner, I drew back, is there anything or anybody that can? She slowly looked away. Miss Leavenworth, I continued with renewed earnestness, you have no brother to plead with you, you have no mother to guide you. Let me then entreat, in default of nearer and dearer friends, that you will rely sufficiently upon me to tell me one thing. What is it? Whether you took the paper imputed to you from the library table. She did not instantly respond, but sat looking earnestly before her with an intentness which seemed to argue that she was weighing the question as well as her reply. Finally, turning toward me, she said, "'In answering you, I speak in confidence, Mr. Raymond. I did.' Crushing back the sigh of despair that arose to my lips, I went on. I will not inquire what the paper was. She waved a hand deprecatingly. But this much more you will tell me. Is that paper still in existence? She looked me steadily in the face. It is not. 
I could with difficulty forbear showing my disappointment. "'Miss Leavenworth,' I now said, "'it may seem cruel for me to press you at this time. Nothing less than my strong realisation of the peril in which you stand would induce me to run the risk of incurring your displeasure by asking what, under other circumstances, would seem puerile and insulting questions. You have told me one thing which I strongly desired to know. Will you also inform me what it was you heard that night, while sitting in your room, between the time of Mr. Harwell's going upstairs, and the closing of the library door, of which you made mention at the inquest? I had pushed my inquiries too far, and I saw it immediately. "'Mr. Raymond,' she returned, "'influenced by my desire not to appear utterly ungrateful to you, I have been led to reply in confidence to one of your urgent appeals, but I can go no further. Do not ask me to.' Stricken to the heart by her look of reproach, I answered with some sadness that her wishes should be respected. "'Not but what I intend to make every effort in my power to discover the true author of this crime. That is a sacred duty which I feel myself called upon to perform. But I will ask you no more questions, nor distress you with further appeals. What is done shall be done without your assistance, and with no other hope than that in the event of my success you will acknowledge my motives to have been pure, and my action disinterested.' "'I am ready to acknowledge that now,' she began, but paused and looked with almost agonised entreaty in my face. "'Mr. Raymond, cannot you leave things as they are? Won't you? I don't ask for assistance, nor do I want it. I would rather—' But I would not listen. Guilt has no right to profit by the generosity of the guiltless. The hand that struck this blow shall not be accountable for the loss of a noble woman's honour and happiness as well. I shall do what I can, Miss Leavenworth. As I walked down the avenue that night, feeling like an adventurous traveller, that in a moment of desperation has set his foot upon a plank stretching in narrow perspective over a chasm of immeasurable depth, this problem evolved itself from the shadows before me. How, with no other clue than the persuasion that Eleanor Leavenworth was engaged in shielding another at the expense of her own good name, I was to combat the prejudices of Mr. Grice, find out the real assassin of Mr. Leavenworth, and free an innocent woman from the suspicion that had, not without some show of reason, fallen upon her. End of chapter 13 Book Two, Chapter Fourteen, of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Henry Clavering. Chapter Fourteen, Mister Grice at Home. Nay, but hear me, measure for measure. That the guilty person for whom Eleanor Leavenworth stood ready to sacrifice herself was one for whom she had formerly cherished affection, I could no longer doubt. Love, or the strong sense of duty growing out of love, being alone sufficient to account for such determined action. Obnoxious as it was to all my prejudices, one name alone, that of the commonplace secretary, 
with his sudden heats and changeful manners, his odd ways and studied self-possession, would recur to my mind whenever I asked myself who this person could be. Not that, without the light which had been thrown upon the affair by Eleanor's strange behaviour, I should have selected this man as one in any way open to suspicion, the peculiarity of his manner at the inquest not being marked enough to counteract the improbability of one in his relations to the deceased finding sufficient motive for a crime so manifestly without favourable results to himself. But if love had entered as a factor into the affair, what might not be expected? James Harwell, simple amanuensis to a retired tea-merchant, was one man. James Harwell, swayed by passion for a woman beautiful as Eleanor Leavenworth, was another. And in placing him upon the list of those parties open to suspicion, I felt I was only doing what was warranted by a proper consideration of probabilities. But between casual suspicion and actual proof, what a gulf! To believe James Harwell capable of guilt, and to find evidence enough to accuse him of it, were two very different things. I felt myself instinctively shrink from the task, before I had fully made up my mind to attempt it. Some relenting thought of his unhappy position, if innocent, forcing itself upon me, and making my very distrust of him seem personally ungenerous, if not absolutely unjust. If I had liked the man better, I should not have been so ready to look upon him with doubt. But Eleanor must be saved at all hazards. Once delivered up to the blight of suspicion, who could tell what the result might be? The arrest of her person, perhaps, a thing which, once accomplished, would cast a shadow over her young life that it would take more than time to dispel. The accusation of an impecunious secretary would be less horrible than this. I determined to make an early call upon Mr. Grice. Meanwhile the contrasted pictures of Eleanor standing with her hand upon the breast of the dead, her face upraised and mirroring a glory, I could not recall without emotion. And Mary, fleeing a short half-hour later indignantly from her presence, haunted me and kept me awake long after midnight. It was like a double vision of light and darkness, that while contrasting neither assimilated nor harmonised, I could not flee from it. Do what I would, the two pictures followed me, filling my soul with alternate hope and distrust, till I knew not whether to place my hand with Eleanor on the breast of the dead, and swear implicit faith in her truth and purity, or to turn my face like Mary, and fly from what I could neither comprehend nor reconcile. Expectant of difficulty, I started next morning upon my search for Mr. Grice, with strong determination not to allow myself to become flurried by disappointment, nor discouraged by premature failure. My business was to save Eleanor Leavenworth, and to do that it was necessary for me to preserve not only my equanimity, but my self-possession. The worst fear I anticipated was that matters would reach a crisis before I could acquire the right, or obtain the opportunity, to interfere. However, the fact of Mr. Leavenworth's funeral being announced for that day gave me some comfort in that direction my knowledge of Mr. Grice being sufficient, as I thought, to warrant me in believing he would wait until after that ceremony, before proceeding to extreme measures. 
I do not know that I had any very definite ideas of what a detective's home should be, but when I stood before the neat three-storey brick house to which I had been directed, I could not but acknowledge there was something in the aspect of its half-open shutters, over-closely drawn curtains of spotless purity, highly suggestive of the character of its inmate. A pale-looking youth, with vivid locks of red hair hanging straight down over either ear, answered my rather nervous ring. To my inquiry as to whether Mr. Grice was in, he gave a kind of snort, which might have meant no, but which I took to mean yes. "'My name is Raymond, and I wish to see him.' He gave me one glance that took in every detail of my person and apparel, and pointed to a door at the head of the stairs. Not waiting for further directions, I hastened up, knocked at the door he had designated, and went in. The broad back of Mr. Grice, stooping above a desk that might have come over in the Mayflower, confronted me. "'Well!' he exclaimed. "'This is an honour!' And rising, he opened with a squeak, and shut with a bang the door of an enormous stove that occupied the centre of the room. "'Rather chilly day, eh?' Yes, I returned, eyeing him closely, to see if he was in a communicative mood. But I have had but little time to consider the state of the weather, my anxiety in regard to this murder. To be sure, he interrupted, fixing his eyes upon the poker, though not with any hostile intention, I am sure. A puzzling piece of business enough, but perhaps it is an open book to you. I see you have something to communicate. I have, though I doubt it is of the nature you expect, Mr. Grice. Since I saw you last, my convictions upon a certain point have been strengthened into an absolute belief. The object of your suspicions is an innocent woman. If I had expected him to betray any surprise at this, I was destined to be disappointed. That is a very pleasing belief, he observed. I honour you for entertaining it, Mr. Raymond." I suppressed a movement of anger. "'So thoroughly is it mine,' I went on, in the determination to arouse him in some way, "'that I have come here to-day to ask you, in the name of justice and common humanity, to suspend action in that direction, till we can convince ourselves there is no truer scent to go upon.' But there was no more show of curiosity than before. "'Indeed!' he cried. "'That is a singular request to come from a man like you.' I was not to be discomposed. "'Mr. Grice,' I went on, "'a woman's name, once tarnished, remains so for ever. Eleanor Leavenworth has too many noble traits to be thoughtlessly dealt with in so momentous a crisis. If you will give me your attention, I promise you shall not regret it.' He smiled, and allowed his eyes to roam from the poker to the arm of my chair. "'Very well,' he remarked. "'I hear you. Say on.' I drew my notes from my pocket-book and laid them on the table. "'What? Memoranda!' he exclaimed. "'Unsafe. Very. Never put your plans on paper.' Taking no heed of the interruption, I went on. "'Mr. Grice, I have had fuller opportunities than yourself for studying this woman. I have seen her in a position which no guilty person could occupy, and I am assured, beyond all doubt, that not only her hands but her heart are pure from this crime. She may have some knowledge of its secrets that I do not presume to deny, 
The key, seen in her possession, would refute me if I did. But what if she has? You can never wish to see so lovely a being brought to shame for withholding information, which she evidently considers it her duty to keep back, when, by a little patient finesse, we may succeed in our purposes without it. "'But,' interposed the detective, "'say this is so. How are we to arrive at the knowledge we want, without following out the only clue which has yet been given us?' "'You will never reach it by following out any clues given you by Eleanor Leavenworth.' His eyebrows lifted expressively, but he said nothing. "'Miss Eleanor Leavenworth has been used by someone acquainted with her firmness, generosity, and perhaps love. Let us discover who possesses sufficient power over her to control her to this extent, and we find the man we seek.' "'Hm!' came from Mr. Granice's compressed lips, and no more. Determined that he should speak, I waited. "'You have, then, some one in your mind?' he remarked at last, almost flippantly. "'I mention no names,' I returned. "'All I want is further time.' "'You are, then, intending to make a personal business of this matter?' "'I am.' He gave a long, low whistle. "'May I ask,' he inquired at length, "'whether you expect to work entirely by yourself, or whether, if a suitable coadjutor were provided, you would disdain his assistance and slight his advice? I desire nothing more than to have you for my colleague. The smile upon his face deepened ironically. You must feel very sure of yourself, said he. I am very sure of Miss Leavenworth. The reply seemed to please him. Let us hear what you propose doing. I did not immediately answer. The truth was I had formed no plans. "'It seems to me,' he continued, "'that you have undertaken a rather difficult task for an amateur. Better leave it to me, Mr. Raymond. Better leave it to me.' "'I am sure,' I returned, "'that nothing would please me better. Not,' he interrupted, "'but that a word from you now and then would be welcome.' I am not an egotist. I am open to suggestions, as, for instance, now, if you would conveniently inform me of all you have yourself seen and heard in regard to this matter, I should be most happy to listen. Relieved to find him so amenable, I asked myself what I really had to tell, not so much that he would consider vital. However, it would not do to hesitate now. "'Mr. Grice,' said I, "'I have but few facts to add to those already known to you. Indeed, I am more moved by conviction than facts. That Eleanor Leavenworth never committed this crime, I am assured. That, on the other hand, the real perpetrator is known to her, I am equally certain, and that for some reason she considers it a sacred duty to shield the assassin, even at the risk of her own safety, follows as a matter of course from the facts. Now, with such data, it cannot be a very difficult task for you or me to work out satisfactorily, to our own minds at least, who this person can be. A little more knowledge of the family, 
"'You know nothing of its secret history, then?' "'Nothing.' "'Do not even know whether either of these girls is engaged to be married?' "'I do not,' I returned, wincing at this direct expression of my own thoughts. He remained a moment silent. "'Mr. Raymond,' he cried at last, have you any idea of the disadvantages under which a detective labours? For instance, now, you imagine I can insinuate myself into all sorts of society, perhaps, but you are mistaken. Strange as it may appear, I have never, by any possibility of means, succeeded with one class of persons at all. I cannot pass myself off for a gentleman tailors and barbers are no good. I am always found out." He looked so dejected I could scarcely forbear smiling, notwithstanding my secret care and anxiety. I have even employed a French valet, who understood dancing and whiskers, but it was all of no avail. The first gentleman I approached stared at me real gentlemen, I mean, none of your American dandies. And I had no stare to return. I had forgotten that emergency in my confabs with Pierre Catneil Marie Makeface. Amused, but a little discomposed by this sudden turn in the conversation, I looked at Mr. Grice inquiringly. Now you, I dare say, have no trouble was born one, perhaps. Can even ask a lady to dance without blushing, eh?' "'Well,' I commenced, "'just so,' he replied. "'Now, I can't. I can enter a house, bow to the mistress of it, let her be as elegant as she will, so long as I have a writ of arrest in my hand, or some such professional matter upon my mind but when it comes to visiting in kid gloves, raising a glass of champagne in response to a toast and such like, I am absolutely good for nothing." And he plunged his two hands into his hair, and looked dolefully at the head of the cane I carried in my hand. But it is much the same with the whole of us. When we are in want of a gentleman to work for us, we have to go outside of our profession. I began to see what he was driving at, but held my peace, vaguely conscious I was likely to prove a necessity to him after all. "'Mr. Raymond,' he now said, almost abruptly, "'do you know a gentleman by the name of Clavering, residing at present at the Hoffman House?' "'Not that I am aware of.' "'He is very polished in his manners. Would you mind making his acquaintance?' I followed Mr. Grice's example and stared at the chimney-piece. "'I cannot answer till I understand matters a little better,' I returned at length. "'There is not much to understand. Mr. Henry Clavering, a gentleman and a man of the world, resides at the Hoffman House. He is a stranger in town, without being strange. Drives, walks, smokes but never visits. Looks at the ladies, but is never seen to bow to one. In short, a person whom it is desirable to know, but whom 
being a proud man, with something of the old-world prejudice against Yankee freedom and forwardness, I would no more approach in the way of acquaintance than I could the Emperor of Austria. And you wish he would make a very agreeable companion for a rising young lawyer of good family and undoubted respectability. I have no doubt if you undertook to cultivate him, you would find him well worth the trouble. But might even desire to take him into familiar relations, to confide in him, and— Mr. Grice, I hastily interrupted, I can never consent to plot for any man's friendship for the sake of betraying him to the police. It is essential to your plans to make the acquaintance of Mr. Clavering, he dryly replied. Oh, I returned, a light breaking in upon me, he has some connection with this case, then? Mr. Grice smoothed his coat-sleeve thoughtfully. I don't know as it will be necessary for you to betray him. You wouldn't object to being introduced to him? No. Nor if you found him pleasant to converse with him? No. Not even if, in the course of conversation, you should come across something that might serve as a clue in your efforts to save Eleanor Leavenworth? The no I uttered this time was less assured. The part of a spy was the very last one I desired to play in the coming drama. "'Well, then,' he went on, ignoring the doubtful tone in which my assent had been given, "'I advise you to immediately take up your quarters at the Hoffman House.' "'I doubt if that would do,' I said. "'If I am not mistaken, I have already seen this gentleman and spoken to him.' Where? Describe him first. Well, he is tall, finely formed, of very upright carriage, with a handsome dark face, brown hair streaked with grey, a piercing eye, and a smooth address, a very imposing personage, I assure you. I have reason to think I have seen him, I returned, and in a few words told him when and where. Hmm, said he at the conclusion, he is evidently as much interested in you as we are in him. How's that? I think I see, he added after a moment's thought. Pity you spoke to him may have created an unfavourable impression, and everything depends upon your meeting without any distrust. He rose and paced the floor. "'Well, we must move slowly, that is all. Give him a chance to see you in other and better lights. Drop into the Hoffman House reading-room. Talk with the best men you meet while there, but not too much, or too indiscriminately. Mr. Clavering is fastidious, and will not feel honoured by the attentions of one who is hail-fellow well met with everybody.' Show yourself for what you are, and leave all advances to him. He'll make them. Supposing we are under a mistake, and the man I met on the corner of 37th Street was not Mr. Clavering, I should be greatly surprised, 
that's all not knowing what further objection to make i remained silent and this head of mine would have to put on its thinking cap he pursued jovially mr gryce i now said anxious to show that all this talk about an unknown party had not served to put my own plans from my mind there is one person of whom we have not spoken no he exclaimed softly wheeling round until his broad back confronted me and who may that be why who but mr i could get no further what right had i to mention any man's name in this connection without possessing sufficient evidence against him to make such mention justifiable i beg your pardon said i but i think i will hold to my first impulse and speak no names harwell he ejaculated easily the quick blush rising to my face gave an involuntary assent i see no reason why we shouldn't speak of him he went on that is if there is anything to be gained by it his testimony at the inquest was honest you think it has not been disproved he's a peculiar man and so am i i felt myself slightly nonplussed and conscious of appearing at a disadvantage lifted my hat from the table and prepared to take my leave but suddenly thinking of hannah turned and asked if there was any news of her he seemed to debate with himself hesitating so long that i began to doubt if this man intended to confide in me after all when suddenly he brought his two hands down before him and exclaimed vehemently the evil one himself is in this business if the earth had opened and swallowed up this girl she couldn't have more effectually disappeared i experienced a sinking of the heart eleanor had said hannah can do nothing for me could it be that the girl was indeed gone and for ever i have innumerable agents at work to say nothing of the general public and yet not so much as a whisper has come to me in regard of her whereabouts or situation i am only afraid we shall find her floating in the river some fine morning without a confession in her pocket everything hangs upon that girl's testimony i remarked he gave a short grunt what does miss leavenworth say about it that the girl cannot help her i thought he looked a trifle surprised at this but he covered it with a nod and an exclamation she must be found for all that said he and shall if i have to send out q q an agent of mine who is a living interrogation point so we call him q which is short for query then as i turned again to go when the contents of the will are made known come to me the will i had forgotten the will end of chapter fourteen chapter fifteen of the leavenworth case by anna catherine green this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter fifteen ways opening it is not and it cannot come to good hamlet i attended the funeral of mr leavenworth but did not see the ladies before or after the ceremony i however had a few moments conversation with mr harwell 
which, without eliciting anything new, provided me with food for abundant conjecture. For he had asked, almost at first greeting, if I had seen the telegram of the night before, and when I responded in the affirmative, turned such a look of mingled distress and appeal upon me, I was tempted to ask how such a frightful insinuation against a young lady of reputation and breeding could ever have got into the papers. It was his reply that struck me. "'That the guilty party might be driven by remorse to own himself the true culprit.' a curious remark to come from a person who had no knowledge or suspicion of the criminal and his character, and I would have pushed the conversation further, but the secretary, who was a man of few words, drew off at this, and could be induced to say no more. Evidently it was my business to cultivate Mr. Clavering, or any one else who could throw any light upon the secret history of these girls. That evening I received notice that Mr. Veeley had arrived home but was in no condition to consult with me upon so painful a subject as the murder of Mr. Leavenworth. Also a line from Eleanor, giving me her address, but requesting me at the same time not to call, unless I had something of importance to communicate, as she was too ill to receive visitors. The little note affected me. Ill, alone, and in a strange home, t'was pitiful. The next day, pursuant to the wishes of Mr. Grice, in I stepped into the Hoffman house, and took a seat in the reading-room. I had been there but a few moments when a gentleman entered, whom I immediately recognised as the same I had spoken to on the corner of 37th Street and 6th Avenue. He must have remembered me also, for he seemed to be slightly embarrassed at seeing me, but recovering himself, took up a paper and soon became, to all appearance, lost in its contents though I could feel his handsome black eye upon me, studying my features, figure, apparel, and movements, with a degree of interest which equally astonished and disconcerted me. I felt that it would be injudicious on my part to return his scrutiny, anxious as I was to meet his eye, and learn what emotion had so fired his curiosity in regard to a perfect stranger. So I rose, and, crossing to an old friend of mine, who sat at a table opposite, commenced a desultory conversation, in the course of which I took occasion to ask if he knew who the handsome stranger was. Dick Furbish was a society man, and knew everybody. "'Oh, his name is Clavering. He comes from London. I don't know anything more about him, though he is to be seen everywhere except in private houses. He has not been received into society yet. Waiting for letters of introduction, perhaps?' "'A gentleman?' "'Undoubtedly.' "'One you speak to?' "'Oh, yes, I talk to him, but the conversation is very one-sided.' I could not help smiling at the grimace with which Dick accompanied this remark. "'Which same goes to prove,' he went on, "'that he is the real thing.' Laughing outright this time, I left him, and in a few minutes sauntered from the room. As I mingled again with the crowd on Broadway, I found myself wondering immensely over this slight experience— that this unknown gentleman from London, who went everywhere except into private houses, could be in any way connected with the affair I had so at heart, seemed not only improbable but absurd, and for the first time I felt tempted to doubt the sagacity of Mr. Grice in recommending him to my attention. The next day I repeated the experiment, but with no greater success than before. Mr. Clavering came into the room, but seeing me did not remain. 
I began to realise it was no easy matter to make his acquaintance. To atone for my disappointment, I called on Mary Leavenworth in the evening. She received me with almost a sister-like familiarity. "'Ah!' she cried, after introducing me to an elderly lady at her side, some connection with the family, I believe, who had come to remain with her for a while. "'You are here to tell me Hannah is found. Is it not so?' I shook my head. Sorry to disappoint her. "'No,' said I. "'Not yet.' "'But Mr. Grice was here to-day, and he told me he hoped she would be heard from within twenty-four hours.' "'Mr. Grice, here?' "'Yes. It came to report how matters were progressing. Not that they seemed to have advanced very far.' "'You could hardly have expected that yet. You must not be so easily discouraged.' "'But I cannot help it. Every day, every hour that passes in this uncertainty, is like a mountain weight here.' And she laid one trembling hand upon her bosom. "'I would have the whole world at work. I would leave no stone unturned. I—' "'What would you do?' "'Oh, I don't know,' she cried, her whole manner suddenly changing. "'Nothing, perhaps.' Then, before I could reply to this, "'Have you seen Eleanor to-day?' I answered in the negative. She did not seem satisfied, but waited till her friend left the room before saying more, then, with an earnest look, inquired if I knew whether Eleanor was well. "'I fear she is not,' I returned. "'It is a great trial to me, Eleanor being away. Not,' she resumed, noting perhaps my incredulous look, that I would have you think I wish to disclaim my share in bringing about the present unhappy state of things. I am willing to acknowledge I was the first to propose a separation, but it is none the easier to bear on that account. "'It is not as hard for you as for her,' said I. "'Not as hard? Why? Because she is left comparatively poor, while I am rich?' "'Is that what you would say?' "'Ah,' she went on, without waiting for my answer, "'would I could persuade Eleanor to share my riches with me. "'Willingly would I bestow upon her the half I have received. "'But I fear she could never be induced to accept so much as a dollar from me.' "'Under the circumstances it would be better for her not to.' "'Just what I thought. "'Yet it would ease me of a great weight if she would.' This fortune, suddenly thrown into my lap, sits like an incubus upon me, Mr. Raymond. When the will was read to-day, which makes me possessor of so much wealth, I could not but feel that a heavy, blinding pall had settled upon me, spotted with blood and woven of horrors. Ah, how different from the feelings with which I have been accustomed to anticipate this day! For, Mr. Raymond, she went on with a hurried gasp, Dreadful as it seems now, I have been reared to look forward to this hour with pride, if not with actual longing. Money has been made so much of in my small world. Not that I wish, in this evil time of retribution, to lay blame upon any one, least of all upon my uncle. But from the day, twelve years ago, when, for the first time, he took us in his arms, and, looking down upon our childish faces, exclaimed, "'The light-haired one pleases me best. She shall be my heiress. I have been petted, cajoled, and spoiled, called little princess, and uncle's darling. 
till it is only strange i retain in this prejudiced breast any of the impulses of generous womanhood yes though i was aware from the first that whim alone had raised this distinction between myself and cousin a distinction which superior beauty worth or accomplishments could never have drawn eleanor being more than my equal in all these things pausing she choked back the sudden sob that rose in her throat with an effort at self-control which was at once touching and admirable then while my eyes stole to her face murmured in a low appealing voice if i have faults you see there is some slight excuse for them arrogance vanity and selfishness being considered in the gay young heiress as no more than so many assertions of laudable dignity ah oh, oh she bitterly exclaimed money alone has been the ruin of us all then with a falling of her voice and now it has come to me with its heritage of evil and i i would give it all for but this is weakness i have no right to afflict you with my griefs pray forget all i have said mr raymond or, or regard my complaints as the utterances of an unhappy girl loaded down with sorrows and oppressed by the weight of many perplexities and terrors but i do not wish to forget i replied you have spoken some good words manifested much noble emotion your possessions cannot but prove a blessing to you if you enter upon them with such feelings as these but with a quick gesture she ejaculated impossible they cannot prove a blessing then as if startled at her own words bit her lip and hastily added very great wealth is never a blessing and now said she with a total change of manner i wish to address you on a subject which may strike you as ill-timed but which nevertheless i must mention if the purpose i have at heart is ever to be accomplished my uncle as you know was engaged at the time of his death in writing a book on chinese customs and prejudices it was a work which he was anxious to see published and naturally i desire to carry out his wishes but in order to do so i find it necessary not only to interest myself in the matter now uh, mr harwell's services being required and it being my wish to dismiss that gentleman as soon as possible but to find some one competent to supervise its completion now i have heard i have been told that you were the one of all others to do this and though it is difficult if not improper for me to ask so great a favour of one who but a week ago was a perfect stranger to me it would afford me the keenest pleasure if you would consent to look over this manuscript and tell me what remains to be done the timidity with which these words were uttered proved her to be in earnest and i could not but wonder at the strange coincidence of this request with my secret wishes it having been a question with me for some time how i was to gain free access to this house without in any way compromising either its inmates or myself i did not know then that mr gryce had been the one to recommend me to her favour in this respect but whatever satisfaction i may have experienced i felt myself in duty bound to plead my incompetence for the task 
so entirely out of the line of my profession, and to suggest the employment of someone better acquainted with such matters than myself, but she would not listen to me. "'Mr. Harwell has notes and memoranda in plenty,' she exclaimed, "'and can give you all the information necessary. You will have no difficulty. Indeed you will not.' "'But cannot Mr. Harwell himself do all that is requisite? He seems to be a clever and diligent young man.' But she shook her head. "'He thinks he can, but I know Uncle never trusted him with the composition of a single sentence.' "'But perhaps he will not be pleased, Mr. Harwell, I mean, with the intrusion of a stranger into his work.' She opened her eyes with astonishment. "'That makes no difference,' she cried. "'Mr. Harwell is in my pay. He has nothing to say about it. But he will not object. I have already consulted him, and he expresses himself as satisfied with the arrangement.' "'Very well,' said I. "'Then I will promise to consider the subject. I can at any rate look over the manuscript and give you my opinion of its condition.' "'Oh, thank you,' said she, with the prettiest gesture of satisfaction. "'How kind you are! And what can I ever do to repay you? But would you like to see Mr. Howell himself?' As she moved towards the door, but suddenly paused, whispering, with a short shudder of remembrance, "'He is in the library.' Do you mind? Crushing down the sick qualm that arose at the mention of that spot, I replied in the negative. The papers are all there, and he says he can work better in his old place than anywhere else, but if you wish I can call him down. But I would not listen to this, and myself led the way to the foot of the stairs. I have sometimes thought I would lock up that room, she hurriedly observed, but something restrains me. I can no more do so than I can leave this house. A power beyond myself forces me to confront all its horrors. And yet I suffer continually from terror. Sometimes in the darkness of the night. But I will not distress you. I have already said too much. Come. And with a sudden lift of the head she mounted the stairs. Mr. Harwell was seated, when we entered that fatal room, in the one chair of all others I expected to see unoccupied and as I beheld his meagre figure bending where, such a little while before his eyes had encountered the outstretched form of his murdered employer, I could not but marvel over the unimaginativeness of the man who, in the face of such memories, could not only appropriate that very spot for his own use, but pursue his avocations there with so much calmness and evident precision. But in another moment I discovered that the disposition of the light in the room made that one seat the only desirable one for his purpose, and instantly my wonder changed to admiration at this quiet surrender of personal feeling to the requirements of the occasion. He looked up mechanically as we came in, but did not rise, his countenance wearing the absorbed expression which bespeaks the preoccupied mind. "'He is utterly oblivious,' Mary whispered. "'That is a way of his.' I doubt if he knows who or what it is that has disturbed him. And advancing into the room she passed across his line of vision, as if to call attention to herself, and said, I have brought Mr. Raymond upstairs to see you, Mr. Harwell. He has been so kind as to accede to my wishes in regard to the completion of the manuscript now before you. Slowly Mr. Harwell rose, wiped his pen and put it away, manifesting, however, a reluctance in doing so, that proved this interference to be in reality anything but agreeable to him. 
Observing this, I did not wait for him to speak, but took up the pile of manuscript, arranged in one mass on the table, saying, "'This seems to be very clearly written. If you will excuse me, I will glance over it and thus learn something of its general character.' He bowed, uttered a word or so of acquiescence, then, as Mary left the room, awkwardly reseated himself, and took up his pen. Instantly the manuscript and all connected with it vanished from my thoughts, and Eleanor, her situation, and the mystery surrounding this family, returned upon me with renewed force. Looking the secretary steadily in the face, I remarked, "'I am very glad of this opportunity of seeing you a moment alone, Mr. Harwell, if only for the purpose of saying anything in regard to the murder.' "'Yes,' I began. "'Then you must pardon me,' he respectfully but firmly replied. "'It is a disagreeable subject which I cannot bear to think of, much less discuss.' Disconcerted, and, what was more, convinced of the impossibility of obtaining any information from this man, I abandoned the attempt, and, taking up the manuscript once more, endeavoured to master in some small degree the nature of its contents. Succeeding beyond my hopes, I opened a short conversation with him in regard to it, and, finally coming to the conclusion I could accomplish what Miss Leavenworth desired, left him and descended again to the reception-room. When, an hour or so later, I withdrew from the house, it was with the feeling that one obstacle had been removed from my path. If I failed in what I had undertaken, it would not be from lack of opportunity of studying the inmates of this dwelling. End of chapter 15。chapter 16 of the Leavenworth case by Anna Catherine Green。this librivox recording is in the public domain。chapter 16 the will of a millionaire。our remedies oft in ourselves do lie which we ascribe to heaven。all's well that ends well。The next morning's Tribune contained a synopsis of Mr. Leavenworth's will. Its provisions were a surprise to me, for, while the bulk of his immense estate was, according to the general understanding bequeathed to his niece Mary, it appeared by a codicil attached to his will some five years before that Eleanor was not entirely forgotten, she having been made the recipient of a legacy which, if not large, was at least sufficient to support her in comfort. After listening to the various comments of my associates on the subject, I proceeded to the house of Mr. Grice, in obedience to his request to call upon him, as soon as possible, after the publication of the will. "'Good morning,' he remarked as I entered, but whether addressing me, or the frowning top of the desk before which he was sitting, it would be difficult to say. "'Won't you sit?' nodding with a curious back movement of his head towards a chair in his rear. I drew up the chair to his side. "'I am curious to know,' I remarked, "'what you have to say about this will, and its probable effects upon the matters we have in hand. What is your own idea in regard to it?' "'Well, I think upon the whole it will make but little difference in public opinion.' Those who thought Eleanor guilty before will feel that they possess now greater cause than ever to doubt her innocence, while those who have hitherto hesitated to suspect her 
will not consider that the comparatively small amount bequeathed her would constitute an adequate motive for so great a crime. You have heard men talk. What seems to be the general opinion among those you converse with? That the motive of the tragedy will be found in the partiality shown in so singular a will, though how they do not profess to know. Mr. Grice suddenly became interested in one of the small drawers before him. "'And all this has not set you thinking?' said he. "'Thinking?' returned I. "'I don't know what you mean. I am sure I have done nothing but think for the last three days. I—' "'Of course, of course,' he cried. "'I didn't mean to say anything disagreeable.' "'And so you have seen Mr. Clavering?' "'Just seen him, no more.' "'And are you going to assist Mr. Harwell in finishing Mr. Leavenworth's book?' "'How did you learn that?' He only smiled. "'Yes,' said I. "'Miss Leavenworth has requested me to do her that little favour. "'She is a queenly creature.' he exclaimed in a burst of enthusiasm. Then, with an instant return to his business-like tone, "'You are going to have opportunities, Mr. Raymond. Now, there are two things I want you to find out. First, what is the connection between these ladies and Mr. Clavering?' "'There is a connection, then?' "'Undoubtedly. And, secondly, what is the cause of the unfriendly feeling which evidently exists between the cousins? I drew back and pondered the position offered me. A spy in a fair woman's house. How could I reconcile it with my natural instincts as a gentleman? "'Cannot you find someone better adapted to learn these secrets for you?' I asked at length. The part of a spy is anything but agreeable to my feelings, I assure you. Mr. Grice's brows fell. I will assist Mr. Harwell in his efforts to arrange Mr. Leavenworth's manuscript for the press, I said. I will give Mr. Clavering an opportunity to form my acquaintance, and I will listen if Miss Leavenworth chooses to make me her confidant in any way. But any hearkening at doors, surprises— unworthy feints or ungentlemanly subterfuges, I herewith disclaim as outside of my province, my task being to find out what I can in an open way, and yours to search into the nooks and corners of this wretched business. In other words, you are to play the hound, and I the mole. Just so. I know what belongs to a gentleman." "'And now,' said I, "'what news of Hannah?' He shook both hands high in the air. "'None!' I cannot say that I was greatly surprised that evening, when, upon descending from an hour's labour with Mr. Harwell, I encountered Miss Leavenworth standing at the foot of the stairs. There had been something in her bearing the night before which prepared me for another interview this evening, though her manner of commencing it was a surprise.' "'Mr. Raymond,' said she, with an air of marked embarrassment, "'I want to ask you a question. I believe you to be a good man. 
and I know you will answer me conscientiously, as a brother would, she added, lifting her eyes for a moment to my face. I know it will sound strange, but remember, I have no adviser but you, and I must ask someone, Mr. Raymond. Do you think a person could do something that was very wrong, and yet grow to be thoroughly good afterwards?' "'Certainly,' I replied, "'if he were truly sorry for his fault.' "'But say it was more than a fault. Say it was an actual harm. Would not the memory of that one evil hour cast a lasting shadow over one's life?' "'That depends upon the nature of the harm, and its effect upon others. "'If one had irreparably injured a fellow-being, "'it would be hard for a person of sensitive nature to live a happy life afterwards, "'though the fact of not living a happy life ought to be no reason "'why one should not live a good life.' "'But to live a good life, would it be necessary to reveal the evil you had done?' cannot one go on and do right without confessing to the world a past wrong yes unless by its confession he can in some way make reparation my answer seemed to trouble her drawing back she stood for one moment in a thoughtful attitude before me her beauty shining with almost a statuesque splendour in the glow of the porcelain shaded lamp at her side nor, though she presently roused herself, leading the way into the drawing-room with a gesture that was allurement itself, did she recur to this topic again, but rather seemed to strive, in the conversation that followed, to make me forget what had already passed between us. That she did not succeed was owing to my intense and unfailing interest in her cousin. As I descended the stoop I saw Thomas, the butler, leaning over the area gate. Immediately I was seized with an impulse to interrogate him, in regard to a matter which had more or less interested me ever since the inquest, and that was, who was the Mr. Robbins who had called upon Eleanor the night of the murder? But Thomas was decidedly uncommunicative. He remembered such a person called, but could not describe his looks any further than to say that he was not a small man. I did not press the matter. End of chapter 16。Chapter 17 The Beginning of Great Surprises Vous regardez une étoile pour deux motifs, parce qu'elle est lumineuse et parce qu'elle est impénétrable. Vous avez auprès de vous un plus doux rayonnement et un pas grand mystère, la femme. Les Misérables And now followed days in which I seemed to make little or no progress. Mr. Clavering, disturbed perhaps by my presence, forsook his usual haunts, thus depriving me of all opportunity of making his acquaintance in any natural manner while the evenings spent at Miss Leavenworth's were productive of little else than constant suspense and uneasiness. The manuscript required less revision than I supposed, but in the course of making such few changes as were necessary, 
I had ample opportunity of studying the character of Mr. Harwell. I found him to be neither more nor less than an excellent amanuensis, stiff, unbending, and sombre, but true to his duty, and reliable in its performance, I learned to respect him, and even to like him, and this too, though I saw the liking was not reciprocated, whatever the respect may have been. He never spoke of Eleanor Leavenworth, or indeed mentioned the family or its trouble in any way, till I began to feel that all this reticence had a cause deeper than the nature of the man, and that if he did speak it would be to some purpose. This suspicion, of course, kept me restlessly eager in his presence. I could not forbear giving him sly glances now and then, to see how he acted when he believed himself unobserved, but he was ever the same, a passive, diligent, unexcitable worker. This continual beating against the stone wall, for thus I regarded it, became at last almost unendurable. Clavering, shy, and the secretary unapproachable. How was I to gain anything? The short interviews I had with Mary did not help matters. Haughty, constrained, feverish, pettish, grateful, appealing, everything at once, and never twice the same. I learned to dread, even while I coveted an interview. She appeared to be passing through some crisis which occasioned her the keenest suffering. I have seen her, when she thought herself alone, throw up her hands with the gesture which we used to ward off a coming evil, or shut out some hideous vision. I have likewise beheld her standing with her proud head abased, her nervous hands drooping, her whole form sinking and inert, as if the pressure of a weight she could neither upbear nor cast aside had robbed her even of the show of resistance. But this was only once. Ordinarily she was at least stately in her trouble. Even when the softest appeal came into her eyes she stood erect, and retained her expression of conscious power. Even the night she met me in the hall with feverish cheeks and lips trembling with eagerness, only to turn and fly again without giving utterance to what she had to say, she comported herself with a fiery dignity that was well-nigh imposing. That all this meant something, I was sure, and so I kept my patience alive, with the hope that some day she would make a revelation. Those quivering lips would not always remain closed. The secret involving Eleanor's honour and happiness would be divulged by this restless being, if by no one else. Nor was the memory of that extraordinary, if not cruel, accusation I had heard her make enough to destroy this hope for hope it had grown to be, so that I found myself insensibly shortening my time with Mr. Harwell in the library, and extending my tete-a-tete -tete visits with Mary in the reception-room, till the imperturbable secretary was forced to complain that he was often left for hours without work. But, as I say, days passed, and a second Monday evening came round without seeing me any further advanced upon the problem I had set myself to solve than when I first started upon it two weeks before. The subject of the murder had not even been broached, nor was Hannah spoken of, though I observed the papers were not allowed to languish an instant upon the stoop, mistress and servants betraying equal interest in their contents. All this was strange to me, 
It was as if you saw a group of human beings eating, drinking, and sleeping upon the sides of a volcano, hot with a late eruption, and trembling with the birth of a new one. I longed to break this silence as we shiver glass, by shouting the name of Eleanor through those gilded rooms and satin-draped vestibules. But this Monday evening I was in a calmer mood. I was determined to expect nothing from my visits to Mary Leavenworth's house, and entered it upon the eve in question with an equanimity such as I had not experienced since the first day I passed under its unhappy portals. But when, upon nearing the reception-room, I saw Mary pacing the floor with the air of one who is restlessly awaiting something or somebody, I took a sudden resolution, and, advancing towards her, said, "'Do I see you alone, Miss Leavenworth?' She paused in her hurried action, blushed and bowed, but, contrary to her usual custom, did not bid me enter. "'Will it be too great an intrusion on my part if I venture to come in?' I asked. Her glance flashed uneasily to the clock, and she seemed about to excuse herself, but suddenly yielded, and, drawing up a chair before the fire, motioned me towards it. Though she endeavoured to appear calm, I vaguely felt I had chanced upon her in one of her most agitated moods, and that I had only to broach the subject I had in mind to behold her haughtiness disappear before me like melting snow. I also felt that I had but few moments in which to do it. I accordingly plunged immediately into the subject. "'Miss Leavenworth,' said I, "'in obtruding upon you to-night I have a purpose other than that of giving myself a pleasure. I have come to make an appeal.' Instantly I saw that in some way I had started wrong. "'An appeal to make to me?' she asked, breathing coldness from every feature of her face. "'Yes,' I went on with passionate recklessness. "'Balked in every other endeavour to learn the truth, "'I have come to you, whom I believe to be noble at the core, "'for that help which seems likely to fail us in every other direction, "'for the word which, if it does not absolutely save your cousin, "'will at least put us upon the track of what will.' "'I do not understand what you mean,' she protested, slightly shrinking. "'Miss Leavenworth,' I pursued, it is needless for me to tell you in what position your cousin stands. You, who remember both the form and drift of the questions put to her at the inquest, comprehend it all without any explanation from me. But what you may not know is this, that unless she is speedily relieved from the suspicion which, justly or not, has attached itself to her name, the consequences which such suspicion entails must fall upon her, and—'Good God!' she cried. "'You do not mean that she will be—subject to arrest, yes.' It was a blow. Shame, horror, and anguish were in every line of her white face. "'And all because of that key,' she murmured. "'Key? How did you know anything about a key?' "'Why?' she cried, flushing painfully. "'I cannot say. Didn't you tell me?' No, I returned. The papers, then? The papers have never mentioned it. She grew more and more agitated. I thought everyone knew. No, I did not either, she avowed, in a sudden burst of shame and penitence. I knew it was a secret, but—oh, Mr. Raymond, it was 
Eleanor herself who told me. Eleanor? Yes, that last evening she was here. We were together in the drawing-room. What did she tell? That the key to the library had been seen in her possession. I could scarcely conceal my incredulity. Eleanor, conscious of the suspicion with which her cousin regarded her, informed that cousin of a fact calculated to add weight to that suspicion. I could not believe this. "'But you knew it,' Mary went on. "'I have revealed nothing I ought to have kept secret.' "'No,' said I. "'And, Miss Leavenworth, it is this thing which makes your cousin's position absolutely dangerous. It is a fact that, left unexplained, must ever link her name with infamy. A bit of circumstantial evidence no sophistry can smother, and no denial obliterate. Only her hitherto spotless reputation, and the efforts of one who, notwithstanding appearances, believes in her innocence, keeps her so long from the clutch of the officers of justice. That key, and the silence preserved by her in regard to it, is sinking her slowly into a pit from which the utmost endeavours of her best friends will soon be inadequate to extricate her. "'And you tell me this?' "'That you may have pity on the poor girl, who will not have pity on herself, and by the explanation of a few circumstances which cannot be mysteries to you, assist in bringing her from under the dreadful shadow that threatens to overwhelm her.' "'And would you insinuate, sir?' she cried, turning upon me with a look of great anger, that I know any more than you do of this matter, that I possess any knowledge which I have not already made public concerning the dreadful tragedy which has transformed our home into a desert, our existence into a lasting horror. Has the blight of suspicion fallen upon me too, and have you come to accuse me in my own house?' "'Miss Leavenworth,' I entreated, "'calm yourself. I accuse you of nothing.' I only desire you to enlighten me as to your cousin's probable motive for this criminating silence. You cannot be ignorant of it. You are her cousin, almost her sister, have been at all events her daily companion for years, and must know for whom, or for what, she seals her lips, and conceals facts which, if known, would direct suspicion to the real criminal. That is, if you really believe what you have hitherto stated, that your cousin is an innocent woman. She is not making any answer to this. I rose and confronted her. Miss Leavenworth, do you believe your cousin guiltless of this crime, or not? Guiltless? Eleanor? Oh, my God, if all the world were only as innocent as she! Then, said I, you must likewise believe that if she refrains from speaking in regard to matters which to ordinary observers ought to be explained, she does it only from motives of kindness towards one less guiltless than herself. What? No, no, I do not say that. What made you think of any such explanation? The action itself, with one of Eleanor's character, such conduct as hers admits of no other construction. Either she is mad, or she is shielding another at the expense of herself. Mary's lip, which had trembled, slowly steadied itself. And whom have you settled upon, 
as the person for whom Eleanor thus sacrifices herself? Ah, said I, there is where I seek assistance from you, with your knowledge of her history. But Mary Leavenworth, sinking haughtily back into her chair, stopped me with a quiet gesture. I beg your pardon, said she, but you make a mistake. I know little or nothing of Eleanor's personal feelings. The mystery must be solved by someone besides me. I changed my tactics. When Eleanor confessed to you that the missing key had been seen in her possession, did she likewise inform you where she obtained it, and for what reason she was hiding it? No. Merely told you the fact without any explanation? Yes. Was not that a strange piece of gratuitous information for her to give one who, but a few hours before, had accused her face to face of committing a deadly crime? What do you mean? she asked, her voice suddenly singing. You will not deny that you were once not only ready to believe her guilty, but that you actually charged her with having perpetrated this crime. Explain yourself, she cried. Miss Leavenworth, do you not remember what you said in that room upstairs, when you were alone with your cousin on the morning of the inquest, just before Mr. Grice and myself entered your presence? Her eyes did not fall, but they filled with sudden terror. "'You heard,' she whispered. "'I could not help it. I was just outside the door, and—' "'What did you hear?' I told her. "'And Mr. Grice?' "'He was at my side.' It seemed as if her eyes would devour my face. Yet nothing was said when you came in. No. You, however, have never forgotten it. How could we, Miss Leavenworth? Her head fell forward in her hands, and for one wild moment she seemed lost in despair. Then she roused and desperately exclaimed, And that is why you come here to-night, with that sentence written upon your heart, you invade my presence, torture me with questions. Pardon me, I broke in. Are my questions such as you, with reasonable regard for the honour of one with whom you are accustomed to associate, should hesitate to answer? Do I derogate from my manhood in asking you how and why you came to make an accusation of so grave a nature at a time when all the circumstances of the case were freshly before you, only to insist fully as strongly upon your cousin's innocence, when you found there was even more cause for your imputation than you had supposed? She did not seem to hear me. "'Oh, my cruel fate!' she murmured. "'Oh, my cruel fate!' "'Miss Leavenworth,' said I, rising and taking my stand before her, "'although there is a temporary estrangement between you and your cousin, you cannot wish to seem her enemy.' Speak, then. Let me at least know the name of him for whom she thus immolates herself. A hint from you. But rising, with a strange look, to her feet, she interrupted me with a stern remark. If you do not know, I cannot inform you. Do not ask me, Mr. Raymond. And she glanced at the clock for the second time. I took another turn. Miss Leavenworth, you once asked me if a person who had committed a wrong— ought necessarily to confess it, and I replied, no, unless by the confession reparation could be made. Do you remember? Her lips moved, but no words issued from them. I begin to think, 
I solemnly proceeded, following the lead of her emotion, that confession is the only way out of this difficulty. That only by the words you can utter Eleanor can be saved from the doom that awaits her. Will you not then show yourself a true woman by responding to my earnest entreaties? I seem to have touched the right chord, for she trembled, and a look of wistfulness filled her eyes. "'Oh, if I could!' she murmured. "'And why can you not? You will never be happy till you do. Eleanor persists in silence, but that is no reason why you should emulate her example. You only make her position more doubtful by it.' "'I know it, but I cannot help myself. Fate has too strong a hold upon me. I cannot break away.' That is not true. Any one can escape from bonds imaginary as yours. No, no, she protested. You do not understand. I understand this, that the path of rectitude is a straight one, and that he who steps into devious byways is going astray. A nicker of light, pathetic beyond description, flashed for a moment across her face. Her throat rose as with one wild sob. Her lips opened. She seemed yielding when— a sharp ring at the front door-bell. "'Oh!' she cried, sharply turning. "'Tell him I cannot see him. Tell him—' "'Miss Leavenworth,' said I, taking her by both hands, "'never mind the door, never mind anything but this. I have asked you a question which involves the mystery of this whole affair. Answer me, then, for your soul's sake. Tell me what the unhappy circumstances were which could induce you—' But she tore her hands from mine. "'The door!' she cried. It will open, and, stepping into the hall, I met Thomas coming up the basement stairs. Go back, said I. I will call you when you are wanted. With a bow he disappeared. You expect me to answer, she exclaimed when I re-entered. Now, in a moment, I cannot. But impossible, fastening her gaze upon the front door. Miss Leavenworth, she shuddered. I feel the time will never come if you do not speak now. Impossible, she reiterated. Another twang at the bell. You hear, said she. I went into the hall and called Thomas. You may open the door now, said I, and moved to return to her side. But with a gesture of command she pointed upstairs. Leave me, and her glance passed on to Thomas, who stopped where he was. I will see you again before I go said I, and hastened upstairs. Thomas opened the door. "'Is Miss Leavenworth in?' I heard a rich, tremulous voice inquire. "'Yes, sir,' came in the butler's most respectful and measured accents, and leaning over the banisters I beheld, to my amazement, the form of Mr. Clavering enter the front hall, and move towards the reception-room. End of chapter 17